everybody. Welcome to the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. I am Sandy McPherson, founder of Quib. And I'm Anna-Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. And today we're talking about Crucial Conversations, a book written in 2011 by a suite of authors about how to handle high-stakes conversations. The reason we picked this book is because we wanted to talk about conversational communication. It's one of the most exciting tools that PMs have available to us to make work happen. We wanted a book that dug into that tool set and taught us things, but would also give us a framework for how we use conversations generally as a tool. This book is not really about that. This book is really about a small subset of conversations, ones that the authors define as crucial, which is high stakes with opposing opinions and strong emotions. So those three tenets make a crucial conversation, a conversation where the stakes are high, your opinions vary, and everyone has strong emotions. So it's crucial that PMs are good conversational communicators, but very few of those conversations that you'll have as a PM are crucial as defined by these authors. Although I will wager that PMs have more crucial conversations than most industries or most roles in most industries because we are kind of at the intersection of a lot of different roles where people will obviously have varying opinions and will often have high emotions around those opinions. And ostensibly, (laughs) we're getting a lot of high-stake work done. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity for these crucial conversations, but it's just really such a small subset that I'm probably going to be talking more about not so much what I learned from this book, but general points and observations around product manager communication and conversations. Yeah, so I sort of found the same thing with this book. I thought it was like well-written and the points from the authors are very useful for crucial conversations. However, I also found myself, I mean, considering I've been working by myself for a long time. I'm sort of like, there's not too many external conversations that are crucial as, I mean, in my case, I'm just not doing that. However, the like base understanding of like, what is a conversation and what is the intention behind conversations and all that type of stuff, I thought was interesting and useful. So one of the points that I liked most was they talked a little bit about how you have to know what you actually want. And to go a little bit like full circle in terms of Are you responding like very quickly to whatever is happening or are you actually responding with an understanding of at the end of this interaction, what do I actually want to happen? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that they do is they give you these like three questions that you should ask yourself when you're having one of these crucial conversations. And then once you do that, you can actually get to like the root of, okay, what is the real problem that you're trying to address through the conversation? So the first question that they propose is, what do you really want for yourself? Secondly, what do you really want for others? And then the final question is, what do you really want for the relationship? And they talk about how in crucial conversations, one of the problems with this type of conversation is that you'll often have a very heightened emotional response. Mm. And it prompts you to go into a zone that is very primal and it's like fear response, which therefore makes you almost useless in actually coming up with a legitimate and valuable solution to what you're trying to work on. And so by asking yourself those three questions, so again, what do you really want for yourself? What do you really want for others? What do you really want for the relationship? You start to actually process the problem from like a critical perspective, not a fear perspective. And then your brain kind of shifts into this other mode of like problem solving and critical thinking. And you recognize that, okay, wait a minute, I'm dealing with like complex social interactions right now. It's not like physical threats. So I thought that those were some really good, just super simple 
Also, what's nice about those is that they're pretty, I think, easy to remember. And mm-hmm. if you can just like give yourself a little reminder of what those three are, those could be really beneficial. When you first enter one of these conversations and you're like, wait a minute, this is a crucial conversation. I'm starting to freak out and respond with like fear responses. Mm-hmm. I should not do that. And then dive into those three questions. Yeah, and I think it brings up a really interesting meta point that I've thought a lot about lately around how to control your emotional reaction to an environment entirely, not necessarily just when you're in like this high stakes, crucial conversation. One of the points that they note there is that when you have these emotions that trigger, they last a lot longer chemically than the source of that emotion. And a lot of times you can just like ride on that cycle of those chemicals that are kicking in and all that cortisol and all that adrenaline and things like that. So I think about this on that level of the, in the moment of the crucial conversations, but also a level above and just like how do you interact with the world day to day and like how do you handle all the inputs and all the overwhelm that is coming at you and finding little ways to like trick your brain into getting into critical mode and getting into like thinking mode as opposed to emotion and reaction mode. Mm-hmm. Super, super helpful. So I love this one for the in the conversation, which is, you know, like you said, what do I want for me? What do I want for them? What do I want for us? So easy. A lot of things that they pointed out in this book I thought were a little bit more complicated to remember. Yeah. <laughs> that one is uh, is a lot easier. Yeah. But one of the things that I do and I've I found really useful when I'm not necessarily in the moment with another person, but just kind of dealing with a lot of stuff that have, is coming at me maybe asynchronously or things like that, is just finding something to latch on to to, like, analyze just anything at all. And sometimes it can be completely unrelated to the problem, something like a crossword puzzle. Or something like that. And just, like, spend five to ten minutes solving a problem and working on that, like, critical thinking space. Mm -hmm. Because it can give your emotions time to kind of, like, flush out Mm -hmm. before you look back at, like, the thing that is triggering that emotion. Be it an email, be it a text, be it even a person in a room. Just, like, kind of step back and, like, think about, like, what is is something that I can approach in a problem-solving mindset and give my emotions time to flush out. Yeah, so I guess now that we're talking about it, I mean, we can go into it a little bit. Just the, yeah, this idea of emotions and what actually are emotions and people oftentimes believe that you're experiencing the world based off of external stimuli and it is those things that then cause you to have a certain emotional response versus the perspective of irrespective of whatever you encounter in the world your emotions are completely under your control at all times and you can choose to feel angry by something that happens. You can choose to feel happy. You can choose to feel like any and all emotions. And the external, what you assign as the trigger is not necessarily the trigger. And it's only through your reaction that you then feel the emotion. And this is something that, I mean, the people who I've encountered who are more sort of like familiar with this perspective on emotion have oftentimes been people who have read or followed Tony Robbins stuff because he talks a lot about this where you are basically in control of your mental barometer Mm. at all times. And to give the credit or blame or whatever to an external source is actually, it's almost like lazy. Hmm. Because, yeah, they talk about how it's like the trigger happens, but then it's the story that you tell yourself internally about what that trigger means or where it's coming from or, like, the larger narrative that causes you to feel an emotion. And so they they kind of walk you through, like, how to identify what that story is between the trigger and the emotion. And so often it happens so quickly it's difficult to really pinpoint. But uh, they kind of give you a few—I don't remember the the tangible steps, but even just knowing to look for that story I think is a big step. And I forget, like, the Tony Robbins— perspective that's the like general idea i don't think he goes into this whole like 
they latch onto this idea of story, and it's a story that they tell you. I forget sort of how he advises you to gain more control in that kind of way. But yeah, for one of the stories, like an example would be you're in a meeting and somebody talks over you. And you can tell yourself the story like, oh, he's talking over me because he thinks I'm a dummy mm-hmm. or something. And then you like feel angry because mm-hmm. or you think that that Threatened. person is, you know, doesn't like you or is mean to you or whatever. Versus like, oh, he talked over me because his previous colleague who worked with him in this capacity was really quiet and he always had to step up and add energy to the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not a very good example because he is still like a little bit, I'm doing air quotes right now, to blame because mm-hmm. he's not recognizing you as like a different individual. But mm-hmm. you can at least empathize with him over the understanding that he's coming from a situation where he had to train himself mm-hmm. to respond in a certain way, and he's just going through that method that he learned previously that was beneficial for similar situations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's difficult, but, yeah, you can sort of, you you sense, like, oh, I have a feeling, and I think even, this is something that they often, it's like a very baseline skill in meditation is to, like, noting like what is the feeling that I'm feeling or am I feeling a feeling even Mm -hmm. and so I think that's also a skill related to this is to go in and like note oh wait a minute I believe I am feeling ignored or Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. something or I am feeling annoyed also it's like an internal emotion versus an external one so if you have this like internal like I feel annoyed right now then you can start to back up and be like, okay, why do I feel that way? What's happening? Is this an appropriate response? Is a story that I'm telling myself true or not? And then from there, you can decide. You're like, yeah, actually, I I should feel Mm -hmm. annoyed right now. Or I shouldn't. And then it's the end result is you are in control of your actual emotional state. Following your emotions around. Yeah. I also, I think that one of the points that I take away from this book that's not necessarily applied in the way that they intend is I think that that entire skill set, that range of skills of like reflecting on where that emotion comes from is super valuable in all states in life. And it's not just valuable if you're going to take a conversational action upon it. And like, I would like to tell you that I am feeling this way. And here is, you know, because they walk us through like, if you are feeling a a thing, identify the story that made you feel that and then share that story and say like, this thing that you did caused me to make this story that made me feel this thing. And they they talk about it as kind of a tool to communicate with someone else. And I find it just as valuable, if not more so, as a tool to identify, like to communicate with yourself and like control yourself, even in times when you're never going to really have that crucial conversation. Because I think a lot of times conversations don't need to be had. Right. I think there's a lot you could just like hash and rehash and hash again with other people that mm-hmm. you could instead just find a way to let it roll off your back and move forward. And like deciding if and when you need to have a crucial conversation is, I think, right. one of the biggest skills in right. the first place. Yeah. Because again, I think this whole book is just like a hyper close lens on once you've decided you need to, then what do you do? Right. Yep. And it was also that was like just a quick little point that they say at near the very end that sort of related or the opposite is that to have a crucial conversation the other person has to want to engage in a dialogue with you yeah and they may not want to and you can have all these skills and create an environment that is welcoming and respectful and all of the things that they talk about in the book but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day if they don't actually want to talk to you it's not going to (laughs) happen yeah Another point on your kind of internalizing what your emotion is and controlling the output that you choose for that emotion, I've been thinking a lot lately about ways to become more calm in moments of crisis. 
I have noticed there's a, a particular PM here at Yammer who's been here for many years and um, is very senior, and she has just this absolute serenity in a storm <laughs> <laughs> that I, I admire so much, and I've been watching and learning from her a fair amount lately. And I was talking to my manager about this, and I, t- I told him, I said, you know, I've been watching her. I really want to learn this skill. Here's ways that I think I am learning this skill and where I'm putting it into play. And his response was kind of counterintuitive, and I, I thought I'd share this. He said, first of all, that's great. Like, I think that's a great skill for you to work on and have in your tool set. Mm-hmm. But be careful because it can backfire. Mm, yeah. If people see you being calm in a moment of crisis or, <laughs> you know, if you're not injecting yeah. urgency into the situation, he said, oftentimes people can perceive that as you're not caring. Yeah. Even if you act absolutely immediately and efficiently to solve a problem, yeah. it's important that people understand that you internalize that it is a problem. Yeah. So just yeah. be careful not to go too far with that. Yeah, That's uh, one of the things, too, that I even notice with. And I don't know if it's because of just, like, the type of person who works in tech is that there's often people who are less socially skilled. And I find I interact with a lot of people who have super low affect. Mm. And they're very difficult to read Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they come across as like just their range of emotional Mm -hmm. response is very narrow and so in talking to them you're trying to you know you're telling them something it's like oh isn't this so exciting and their response is the same as you know five minutes prior when you had told them about the world like imploding and i find it's really difficult to interact with those people sometimes i find that often i overcorrect for that, where I I don't get the emotional response that I'm looking for from someone. And so I can like push again and again and be like, no, this thing is really, really Uh, exciting. And don't you see this? And, you know, things like that. And it's been, I I think it's something that has has not been a problem. It hasn't like backfired or held me back or like been a point of difficulty, but it's not necessarily the most socially aware of me either. Right. To like yeah. keep pushing like this is really a big deal yeah. or like be like we should be nervous about this or we should like really push hard on this exciting opportunity. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting to think about like how you match when someone's bandwidth is different from yours. Like yeah. how do you compress down to like what makes sense for them and how do you like expand out from them to something that makes sense for you? Yeah, sort of related. One of the points that they made in the book was around how when you're having one of these crucial conversations, the Content is not the only thing that matters. The other thing that is, like, crucially important uh-huh, crucially important, <laughs> is the condition. Mm. And so you have to be aware of everyone else who's there. They use this language around people being safe and do people feel safe in sharing their opinions, engaging with everyone, being basically, like, vulnerable. But the ability to recognize, like, what is everybody else? Like, what's, what are they going mm-hmm. through? How do they feel? And they talk about how people will often respond differently when they're in one of these crucial conversations and their condition can change. Sometimes they have a physical response. Sometimes they have an emotional response. Sometimes they have a behavioral response. The one thing as well that came across like multiple times in this book was just how complex conversations Mm. are. It's like, oh, my God, there's so much. There's so so much much stuff going on. And they speak to the fact that it's only through practice and the experience that you build up that you're going to be able to sort of like build out your like range of being able to identify small cues and like the nuances of the conditions that people create in a room that then affect your ability to like manage and have a 
valuable outcome from a crucial conversation. Some of the responses that they talk about this, like, yeah, physical, emotional, behavioral. It's interesting because one of the examples they give is that, you know, if someone feels unsafe and if you can't recognize it through how they respond, it may actually progress to a point where it's more difficult to manage. So the example that they give is if someone feels unsafe and you maybe don't recognize one of the cues, they may then turn to being defensive They might, like, tease you or take it out on other people. Mm. And then that has ripple on effects of now all of a sudden you feel threatened and you're Mm. like, oh, my God, I need to, like, defend myself because they're teasing me in front of all these other people. Or you need to jump in and protect somebody else who's being, like, abused by this person. And so this idea of it's really, really great if you can work on this stuff and build up some experience because it's very easy for the condition of the conversation to really quickly spiral into a very difficult situation. Yeah, yeah. That uh, Then I feel that's so hard. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is it's not just about developing the skill set of identifying cues. It's about developing a skill set of getting to know a person really quickly because every new person is going to have a different set of cues that you're going to have to learn and, and understand how to work with. And one of the things about product managers is that we have a tendency to be working with a very large number of people, mm. even for very short periods of time. Like I have probably 50 or 60 people at Yammer who could reasonably reach out to me and ask me for like insight or advice or input or something like that related to a project that I'm working on. And so that's 60 different mental models on the world that I have to keep in my mind for when they reach out to me. Like, where are they in terms of, like, how much bandwidth they're normally exerting? Like, what kind of eye contact do they normally make? Like, like, what's their baseline? So one of the things that I try and do anytime I start working with someone new, be it new to the org or just new to me, someone that's just, like, recently joined the team or I join a new team, is get, like, a one-on-one coffee as soon as possible with every person that you're going to be working with and try and just... I mean, just like throwing phonemes out, (laughs) it doesn't even matter what you're talking about. And just get a sense of like where their tone is, what their cadence is like, where their eyes go, and just like kind of build up a little bit of a knowledge around what they're like when they're kind of in a bit of a comfortable place. And there's nothing like challenging or difficult in the conversation. And I think that's something that is especially imperative when you join a new company so anyone who's out there listening and thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, they're <laughs> starting a PM job or just moving into a new PM job, like give a lot of thought into how you model the people that you're going to be working with and build up those baselines as soon as possible because everyone's scared reactions are different. Yeah. Everyone's like, I'm not safe realities. They exhibit that differently. I also have a, a point here around how it's really easy to get caught up on the words. Mm. Like that's kind of the definition of conversation in our yeah. mind is like I say words and then you say words. Yeah. And then that's what a conversation is. But a conversation is actually, I mean, words are almost only ever gloss on top of the conversation from sure. my perspective. Really, it's about the syntax. It's the tone. It's the feeling. It's like are they speaking with passive voice or active voice when they're talking about their project? Like that can tell you a lot. Right. Are they speaking like up intonation, down intonation? Um, <laughs> like, I mean, these things. Up intonation. But the secondary check on that is are they from California yeah. or not? Are they from California? And then do they just keep going and going? Yeah. That's another thing for sure. Um, so, again, it comes back to like having a baseline for that person yeah. and then knowing like where are they relative to their baselines. And then this is just so multidimensional. There's like, like you said, so many different things to a conversation. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I, I give a tiny little anecdote about something that happened here. I want to say six or nine months ago, I noticed that one of the managers on our team 
had started shifting the tense with which he talked about anything that had to do with like child rearing. Like we'd be talking at lunch oh, interesting. about like one of our PMs had a, a child recently, and so he was talking about like breastfeeding, blah, blah blah, various things like that. And the other PM like always joined in those conversations, but at like a particular period of time, they like shifted the tense mm-hmm. that they were talking about things yeah. within, and I was like. They are pregnant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like super, super subtle. So when they finally like told the team, I was like, oh, yeah. I knew. You, you've been pregnant for about two and a half months now, right? Yeah. Like this is when you figured that out. And so things like that are it's kind of absurd to be listening for stuff like that. But at the same time, that will mean all the difference when you get into a really intense moment having some kind of background of like where someone is and where they've been with their project, how they've been feeling about this coworker, things like that, mm-hmm. building that up over time so that you're not like completely blindsided for one and that you have like kind of a, a place of empathy to interact with them. There's a lot to listen to and it's very rarely the actual words. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard like a, there's one definition, I forget where it's from, of what a conversation is. And the definition is something like it's just an ever-increasing back-and-forth disclosure. Hmm. And it's like one side discloses, the other side discloses, and then you just disclose more and more back and forth. Hmm. And that's what a conversation is. I like that. Something that's kind of interesting to take take a moment and talk about is what a conversation means in the world of product management. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few tools that we really have, right? Like we have... Written communication for, like, specs or, like, formal things or when you want to, like, bring people along. Which we have another podcast on. On writing. Yeah. (laughs) Another episode is about that. (laughs) Which I think is a little more obvious of a skill because when you think about what are the artifacts of product management, one of the few physical artifacts is the spec. Sure. Right? or, Or maybe, like, a blog post announcing something. Things like that. But most of the work that happens day to day is verbal conversations right. that I have like with my team, you know, the follow-up action items, things like that that go after, sure. But I would say 80 to 90% of the actual day-to-day work I do is in like conveying ideas and emotions mm-hmm. and trying to like instill some sense of mastery and ownership and urgency and all of these things like towards a common goal and injecting that into like the mind of another human is a very challenging task and I think it's something that it's very easy to overlook because it's something we all do like we all talk so like how could talking be the skill right right but there's just so much more to talking than we like address as a society yeah yeah no it's one thing there was a I think I saw it today actually there was a tweet from somebody And it's interesting, like, how people describe the role of, like, founder or CEO person. Mm -hmm. And I found this one to be really true where he talks about the first one is getting money. The second one is creating a compelling vision. And the third is hiring the right people. Mm -hmm. And, like, all of those things are basically talking. Mm -hmm. Like, you do (laughs) do most of those things through talking. And so it was, again, it was like, yep, that's what it is. Like, it's not about actually building things or designing things or doing anything that's tangible. It's about these things that are driven mostly from communicating with other people. Hmm. So following along around the the topic of what the skill set of talking involves, something that wasn't really intuitive to me and a a PM at Asana pointed out to me is the skill set in conversation she defined as a seek to understand before being understood. Hmm. And I think that's something where especially a lot of PMs bring a lot of ego mm-hmm. into an environment. <laughs> uh, my, myself 
included, <laughs> possibly at the heart of that, where, you know, there's just like, I walk into the room and I've just got like a lot of energy and a lot of presence that comes in. Mm-hmm. And that can be very loud emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so she gave me this advice to kind of focus my intention and energy on understanding before giving any thought to being understood. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really fascinating to think about this from the product manager mindset of like getting things going and putting energy into stuff. And you, you kind of think of it as, as your responsibility to push in that way. Mm-hmm. But I think it can be really counterproductive because it's really emotionally difficult for people to voice ideas, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they feel like everything's already been like resolved or set or right. kind of established or like you kind of got it under control. Yeah, Because this is totally their point about creating a pool of shared meaning. Yeah, the shared. Right. So, so the, in this book, the Crucial Conversations book, they talk about how to get into dialogue before you start like deciding things or anything like that. You should start by establishing like stuff in common, and like you put your ideas into the pool, and they put their ideas into the pool, and you kind of like share this context between the two of you. And I guess I'm talking one step before that, which is before you start adding ideas to the pool. Mm-hmm. Try to understand what they're adding. Sure. Yeah. So like, yeah. don't start by saying, "Here's what I think. What do you think?" But, like, start by soliciting other people's opinions. Start by trying to understand where they're at. Start by trying to, like, suss out the room and the mood and things like that. And I think I've seen a lot of times where people who have, like, an incredible, creative, diverse skill set kind of keep their mouth shut in a room that's not very open for them, Mm -hmm. basically. And I think that a lot of times, especially at the genesis side of a project where you just started, like, kicking ideas around, if you are putting your ideas out there as a PM, it's just by the very nature of the type of person you probably are. You're probably like a little bit louder than the average designer. You're probably a little bit louder than the average engineer. It can have a dampening effect on other people. Sure. So that's something that I've been focusing on with some intention, just how do I come into a room with an intention to understand first before mm-hmm. like putting any energy into like, here are some things, like let me try and communicate that to you. And then have you found that any situations that's easier or more difficult? Like, does it depend on if you go in and you already know the people versus you don't know them, or it's a crucial conversation versus a non-crucial one? Is there anything that... I think that I find it more difficult when I'm more excited. Mm. (laughs) Like, the more excited I am about the idea or the space or the problem or anything, the more I want to just, like, run at it when I walk into the room. And so I, I kind of put just, like, a mental reminder. Like, it's almost like a liminal moment of, like, step into a meeting and, like, in the process of crossing that threshold, like shift into like observe and learn mode mm-hmm. where a lot of times especially during execution or like towards the end of a project I'm more into like let's get this going let's like finish let's wrap right. this out and things like that yeah a point near the end of the book that I really enjoyed was how because they basically teach or list out all of these tactics and skills and ideas that you can apply when you're having crucial conversations both and I, I like this part too where they talk about professional situations as well as personal ones But one of the things that they get to at the end is that you need to separate out dialogue and actually having a conversation from decision making itself. Mm, Yeah. And that those two are very different. The skills and tactics and things that you learn about how to have a conversation will not apply to the decision making step. And I appreciated that they actually called that out. It reminded me, I have a couple friends who are co-founders of a startup and they would have a meeting I'm trying to remember it was either I think it was every Monday or Friday and it was kind of like a product driven meeting where people would come together from across the org who were doing you know very different roles 
to come up with like suggestions or ideas on what they should be focused on or working on or if they had seen anything interesting the week prior, just to sort of flag it as something that otherwise may not have been seen by other people on the team and that potentially they should think about, explore, and work on. And everybody on the team would kind of share ideas. I think they did a really great job, these co-founders, of developing just like a really solid culture in the in the company of everyone being very like open and comfortable and safe. Again, back to the word that they talk about in this book. And what they would do at the end of it is everybody on the team would get a vote and they would vote for whichever, you know, feature or, you know, thing, whatever it was that they should maybe work on. So it was it could even be like related to the company itself, like hiring or mm. it wasn't necessarily just product level stuff. But then what was really interesting was after they voted, then the co-founders would basically just like take that and be like, OK, thanks, guys. We will now decide. <laughs> and even though they would sit there and they would talk about like what these things were and why they mattered and why they thought they were important, it was this interesting balance because this company had been around for maybe two years or something. So everyone knew that it was like a good process. They believed in it. They were contributing openly and everyone was really transparent Yet they knew that their vote, like, mattered, but mm. not really. But mm. they were still, like, excited to participate in the process, which I thought was just, like, kudos to them for doing that because it seemed like it was, like, a delicate balance. God, that is so difficult. I struggle with this on, on several levels, like, my individual project teams, my, like, larger initiative, like, also just within the org writ large, just this concept of how do you give people all the space in the world to, like, voice their opinions and put stuff forward without having to live in a consensus environment. Right. I mean, it's interesting. I've, I've talked with a couple individual contributors on a, a large integration project I'm working on, and they have ideas and they're voicing them and they're putting in places, but they're, they're like, I just want someone to decide. Just like, tell me what, like, what is it that we're <laughs> yeah, supposed to be doing? Yeah, there's that also as well. Yeah. It just, you can spend so much time chasing your tail, and yep. unless it's really clear who's going to make a decision yep. and who needs to be consulted or who has veto rights and things like that, yep. it can just stall an entire process, and it doesn't make anybody any happier. Yep. So I think there's, I mean, there's a, a huge lesson to be learned about establishing in advance who yep. has decision-making power and then who has veto power and who has ratification I think this is also something from the high output management as well. There was a, oh, a, yeah. a lesson. Oh, yeah, he talks about yep, dis- making decisions. Another episode of the oh. Clearly Product Book Club podcast. Mm, that was the most recent one, I do believe. <laughs> was that our last one? Yeah, I think it yeah. was, yeah. Just the concept of establishing during the process of trying to figure something out, who's going to be the person that you have to get that approved by? Because otherwise it's just like the decision flounders. Yeah, it's something, too, that I know I've talked to a couple other co-founders about this in relation to making decisions about product. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of these things where some startups have, like, really small ones, have this sense of, you know, there's co-founders and there's, you know, oftentimes just two of them and they have to get to consensus before Mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting in getting, you know, I was collecting some thoughts on this and people were like, no, that is never the case. Like, Mm -hmm. there's always, like, when it comes to product, there's always, like, one of the co-founders makes the decisions about product and you need to have someone who actually makes those decisions Mm -hmm. because while everyone says it's so nice to live in this consensus driven world Mm -hmm. especially in like a startup you need to move quickly and Mm -hmm. sometimes enough like value isn't going to arise out of going through a consensus driven process that makes it worth the trade-off of the time that it costs to get there yeah time is valuable valuable resource yeah the most scarce I think it's also something to think about when you are newer in an org or moving into 
a new position or a new org, figuring out what those rules are for who has to say yes to yeah. something. Yeah. And my advice there is generally, if you're starting somewhere, like find you know who you're kind of probably someone a, a year ahead of you, someone who like joined kind of recently, and ask them like what is the process for making like something go through and who has those unwritten veto rights. Because there's a lot of that in product orgs, I find, where there's a lot of autonomy on the PM level, but especially when you first join, you know, everyone's looking out for you to succeed, but that means that, like, a couple people might be able to say, like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Like, that's actually a really bad idea. And as much as you could probably burn through it and do it anyway, you might burn a lot of credibility in your ability to move forward in the future. And those rules are, they're unwritten, but they're real. Yeah. Well, a point that they made kind of scattered throughout the book and not really head on, but really something that I've been thinking a lot about as a PM here is how to use your voice to make room for the voice of others. Mm -hmm. And they talk a little bit about making sure that, like, you've made it a safe space for people to, like, contribute to that shared pool of meaning and things like that. And I think there's so much to be said about how to make spaces safe. I think that's a whole separate skill set. But I think it's really important as someone who's usually in a position of some sort of authority in the room to solicit input from everyone and keep your eye out for those people who are perhaps getting talked over or are kind of like taking a breath to say something, but don't get all the way into like vocalizing because someone else has spoken. Especially you get into environments with like six to eight people in a room. There's always going to be one person who's a little bit more hesitant. Maybe they're slightly more junior or maybe they're just softer speaking. And so people don't hear them and then they end up in this like frustration loop of like people aren't hearing me, so I'm not going to talk. And I think you have a, a really interesting position as a product manager to often call that out really explicitly. And it's something that I've done and seen done time and time again. And it's just, it's really comfortable to just say, hey, you know what? Um, actually, he was talking. Let's let him finish his, his thought. Yeah. And it, it's just so easy to inject that into a room. But like yeah. the person who was talking can't because yeah. then they're whining. Yeah. You know, you really need someone else to be doing that for you. Yeah. Have you found any more like subtle ways to do it? Because I find that one of the, not sorry, subtle isn't the right word, but I find one of the other issues is that if you have a person who is just quieter and does not like to speak up at the same rate as other people in the room, maybe in calling them out, they may actually not be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then you potentially you risk them like skirting further away. Do you have a way to sort of like measure like where are they at? Like, is it only once they've sort of tried to say something and got shut down Yeah, so a few things to say to that. So first of all, I've had a lot of positive reactions to that. People have sent me private messages like, hey, thanks so much for, like, helping me say that thing I was trying to and I couldn't get it said um, and things like that. That's happened a bunch. The two other things that I've used effectively are, one, going around the room at the end and asking every person in the room, like, okay, anything else? Did you have anything? Did you have anything? Did you have anything? And very democratically just, like, ensuring that everyone feels that the meeting is, like, resolved. Mm -hmm. It's also a really handy trick to end a meeting early. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you feel like you've gotten to a point where everything's been said that needs to be said and all the decisions and action items have been documented, Mm -hmm. it's a real convenient step to just, like, go one by one through the room and ask, did you have anything else? When you're done at the last person, the meeting is over, and maybe there's 5 to 12 to 35 minutes left that people get to take, which is really difficult because people just have this emotional expectation that a meeting will last for as long as it's scheduled. Mm -hmm. So I find that's doubly beneficial. And then the third thing is to speak to people in advance if they have a tendency to be a little bit quieter mm-hmm. and solicit their opinions in advance and then bring those up in the meeting and, like, voice them be like, I was speaking with this person 
in the meeting here now gotcha. about this thing, and they had this idea. Do you want to share more on it? Mm-hmm. So you're helping to manage their like behavioral response by propping them up with clearly the idea that like their content is good, and it's like exactly. helping make it be safe through putting it out there and getting a positive response. Right. It's so worth saying that like yeah. someone else will say it for you. Right. I'm still giving you credit, but. That's been really effective. Another thing on the the topic of giving credit for ideas, something that I've put a lot of energy into here personally as well as sharing this tactic around the org is uh, this concept of amplification, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've talked about or you might have read. There's a really great New York Times article in, I want to say, maybe July of 2016 Mm -hmm. about the women in the Obama administration. Okay who developed a tactic they called amplification Mm -hmm. to ensure that people who were perhaps unintentionally not hearing women in the room Mm -hmm. kind of had to. So it's like a pretty well-documented phenomenon that if a woman poses an idea and then a man later poses the idea, he'll get credit for it. Mm -hmm. And so there's this concept of amplification where if someone does that and comes in later and says, oh, I have this idea, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. that was perhaps voiced earlier in the room— you can, if you see it, just jump in and say, oh, yeah, like when Sandy said that earlier, I thought it was a great idea. Right. And just kind of subtly like shift that acknowledgement in that direction because a lot of times it's not intentional. People aren't right. trying to steal ideas. They just don't realize they heard them. Sure. And there's like all these levels and layers of unconscious bias at play there. So that's another place to like make sure that voices are heard. Is And I've, I've actually I've seen this happen a lot, especially in like brainstorming meetings where people aren't really paying attention to what ideas are said when or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it's really easy for someone to, like, jump in with an idea they don't realize they already heard from someone else in that room 20 minutes ago. Right. Yeah, maybe one just, like, final thing on that point is I know that sometimes, because they they speak as well about crucial conversations and it's about, you know, other individuals and yourself and the focus on just, like, training yourself and understanding what it is. So outside of the, like, you control your own emotional response, it's also the idea of, you are going to be the person that you are going to understand best in all of the conversations that you have. Hmm. And so it was this idea of like, oh, yeah, maybe you should actually put yourself into situations that for you don't necessarily matter. So you can test and practice and understand, oh, when I feel threatened, I tend to do this. Mm. Or when I feel that the other person isn't talking enough, I do this. And to do it with like, I don't know, salespeople or cashiers or like Mm. random people where it's not actually a crucial conversation, but there's enough of an interaction with another individual that you can start to test and understand, I don't know, like a town hall meeting or Mm -hmm. something and just go in with like a very contrary opinion (laughs) um, and just practice. And so it's one of these things where recently I had one interaction with another person and I sensed myself sort of like starting to just kind of like clam up a little bit. And I was like, oh, I feel like attacked. And and that's sort of my response. But something else had happened prior in the week where that same situation happened. And I was able to note it and recognize mm. it and see it in myself. And I think it was only because of like what they talk about here is like the frequency and the practice. Mm. The frequency and practice that you're going to get most often is, you know, yourself and your own reactions. Mm. And so for me, there was this conversation that was about to go off the rails a little bit. But Mm. because I had had this recent experience, because maybe because I had read this book, (laughs) I was able to sort of be like, wait a minute, this is happening now. I recognize this in myself. And then it didn't lead to if I had responded defensively or gotten quiet or done something, then it would have led the other person to, you know, also augment the situation and then spiral, spiral, spiral. Mm. But I, yeah, it's one of these things I think that... 
the good thing about this book is that they give some examples in personal and professional lives. And that was what this situation was able to bring to light for me was that the skills professionally, you don't necessarily only get to practice them in that context. You can actually pick up some of the skills outside of just like, you know, your daily stand up or whatever, mm-hmm. or whatever meetings that you have with other individuals, you can practice and you can even set up practice situations mm-hmm. as you see fit. Yeah, I noticed that ever since I started reading this book, I've been more conscientious in how I approach conversations in all walks of my life. Mm. It's been a really beautiful experience where I've watched myself know what to look for and watched myself like learn and grow in these ways mm-hmm. and really exciting and fun. I one of the things that they mentioned at the beginning, I think it was at the beginning of the book was like before you run off and like buy a copy of this book for XYZ person or partner or friend oh. <laughs> and possibly underline sections. Like, remember that this has, like, they have to choose to be in dialogue with you. Yeah. I thought that was so funny because I really just want to buy this book for most people in my life. That's funny. You know, personal and professional. I think it's just, it's a handy skill set. Yeah. Yeah. The last point that I wanted to make was around narratives. Mm-hmm. And I think they talk a lot about the stories that we tell ourselves that kind of transfer from some trigger happening to some internalization and emotion, um, an emotional reaction. The thing that I think a lot about in product management around that is using your ability to like tell a narrative to communicate with someone else's heart. And I think that's something that we think a lot about, like how we can communicate feelings with the work that we do and the products that we build. But I think it's really important to keep your eye and your mind on how you're communicating feelings into the hearts of the people that you're working with. Mm-hmm. How do you set up the narrative around like, what is the goal that we're approaching with this project and like how are we attacking that goal? And then also how do we control the narrative when inputs change? Right. I've seen a lot where many times I've put a lot of effort into like pushing energy into this narrative around a goal and like why we're doing this and why we're doing it this way. And then, you know, some things change and that can be really difficult for people to emotionally handle unless you like communicate, okay, because of this now, like we're going to shift in this way. Because if you kind of give someone a torch and ask them to run and then like start yelling at them, they're running in the wrong direction because something changed, it could be really emotionally jarring. And don't they, I feel like in the book, there's a section where they speak specifically, they label it as like heart. Don't they like lead with lead with heart heart or something? Yeah. Yeah. Like start with like, here's where I am. Here's why, you know, here's why this is, it's like a very vulnerable kind of thing. So I think that that's part of what I'm talking about, but I'm also talking about ways in which to use narrative to convey what you want to try to convey. I think it's, it's really easy to say, like, here's the goal, here's what we want to accomplish, here's how we're going to measure success, like, rah, 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 mm-hmm. versus, like, spinning it up into a story, like right. a human story. Yep. And I've I found more and more often now that, like, using human stories has been so much more effective in communicating passion and goals and ideas to people on my team. Right. One thing that I've started doing lately is every daily stand-up with the—so we have a a stand-up across the initiative, and every stand-up I bring story time. And so everyone brings, you know, like, where I am, what I'm blocked by, like, what I did and what's blocking me. And I bring story time, which is here is some narrative from some customer that's using Yammer and, like, a thing that we learned— about their success. Like, mm-hmm. what, what's what's a tangible takeaway? Like, how are they operating differently? What has the use of Yammer changed in their world? The mission of Yammer is to give every employee a voice and to enable the entire organization to make better decisions faster because of that. And we talk about that mission in and out of all these all hands and things like that. 
but bringing the stories of like, here's how we gave everyone a voice at this particular restaurant chain. Mm-hmm. Here's how that changed things for them. Here's how like they were able to solve a problem across the entire chain that no individual restaurant could figure out on right. their own and things like that. And it just, the look on people's faces when you communicate a personal anecdote mm-hmm. from another human is just so different mm-hmm. from communicating like, we want to give everyone a voice. Right. Like it just it doesn't resonate in the same way. And that's right. something that I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Narratives are one of the most powerful tools to affect human emotion and human change. And I think about the masters of this skill, the animators at Pixar, yeah. the people who are who are telling these stories that like touch us so much and you walk out of Inside Out and you're just you've been sobbing for an hour and a half from various moments. Those things touch us because they're stories. And I think it's really important to remember as a product manager that the best way to connect with someone is through a story. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also that idea of bringing, you know, story time to stand up is something that, I mean, basically, I'm trying to think of a product that wouldn't be able to do that. I feel Mm -hmm. like as long as you have users, I don't know what kind of product (laughs) doesn't have users, but in theory, that's something that anyone working on any product could do. Yeah. And even if you don't have users, you can bring a story from, like, customer research or, like, research, preemptive research around, like, here's a problem we're trying to solve. Meet Anne. Anne is doing this with her flower shop. And, like, we could help her solve this thing if we get this product out there. Yeah. It's very compelling. Yeah. So do you have—I mean, we want to do our pony scale, traditional pony scale, one to five ponies. Um, How good do you think this book was? Who do you think it's best for? Who would you recommend it for? What sunglasses would you recommend they wear when they're reading it? Oh, that's a new new question. What view do you recommend (laughs) people take on this book? Oh, So I am... Ooh, um, that sounds like not great. Well, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, I like the book. I think it has a lot of great advice and tactics and things, but... And it may just have been like the... I read it over like two days pretty intensely, and was just focused on basically getting through it because mm. I had a bunch to do. So maybe I just didn't like absorb it well, but even now, so before we record, typically we sit down with the books and we like make our notes. And in making my notes, I was like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. And I'm kind of like, yeah, these are a bunch of like great things to do, but I'm not actually sure how to integrate them into my life. And mm-hmm. I feel as well that a lot of them are things that were not necessarily novel. Mm-hmm. So it was like, yeah, a nice summary of like how to interact with humans. But I'm kind of like, I don't know where it left me. Hmm. Yeah. So I find the pony scale, yeah, giving it a ranking is hard because like, yeah, it's all good, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to drive me to change my conversations or it also, I have no view of my future that sits outside of me not having this book like open while I'm having one, being like, "Hold on a moment, am I doing pool of safety right now? Am I leading with heart? Or am I leading with heart? Share or my story. Am I sharing a story? Am I rewriting my own story or your whose story? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. So I feel so with that. I I, I don't know, like three ponies, three yeah. and a half. Or three ponies with bows? I don't know. Yeah, I'm a pretty solid three right now, and I think for a lot of the same reasons. I think it's the thing that this book distills down into in my mind is, like, pay attention to what's going on that's not a word that's coming out of your mouth or someone else's mouth. Like, just, like, ignore the words and look at everything else. 
And there's just a lot of different tactics toward doing that that they present. And some of it is um, super interesting, that concept of, like, the story between the trigger and the feeling. Mm-hmm. That was, like, kind of novel, this concept of, like, remember when you walk into something, like, remember the other person. Like, what do you, what do you want right. for them? What do you want right. for you? And so there was a lot there that just kind of, like, gave me some terminology for stuff, but it didn't really change much in my right. world. Yep. And I think it's a really useful refresher of just like remember mm. that people are humans right remember that there are like reasons to look at them with empathy and like these yeah. are different little tips and tricks toward it but unlike something like the negotiation book which was also about yeah. kind of understanding yeah. other people yeah. this one didn't feel as cohesive or as accessible or as memorable that was the other thing that i was going to say was that i feel that if you want it to read a book about having conversations that are crucial. <laughs> intense. Um, high stakes. Intense. High stakes. I would probably recommend that you read Never Split the Difference versus this book. Because yeah. I think, and it it's funny too, like, I think when we chose this book, I know I didn't anticipate that it would have as much, like, situational overlap in relation mm-hmm. to how and where it could be applied as the negotiation book. But now on the other side, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, conversations and negotiations, like, they are fairly comparable. And I do think that I preferred the other book and felt that I learned things that were actually novel that I then have applied to my life versus this yeah. one. I, I mean, I finished reading it like two weeks ago and I'm kind of like looking at it now and I'm like, oh yeah, that thing. And yeah, it's, it's not been something that I've been doing. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, there's two points there. First of all, like the acronyms that they chose and like the stuff yeah. that, you know, it's just like, it didn't all jive super well together. I mm-hmm. think there's a few authors involved and so they all probably each picked one. Right. So that's kind of just hard to keep in a framework in, in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And then I'll also say that if you haven't read Never Split the Difference, a lot of the stuff might be novel. I right. think there's some stuff that we just so recently read another book that's about how to meet people where they are that this one had less that was new. Right. True. Uh, yeah. I, although I, I do think that it's something that I approach, I approach a negotiation differently. And I think that I was expecting this to be more broadly about conversation. Right. And I think that's that's the lens that I wanted to, to bring to this episode. And I just decided to, like, use the book as, like, eh. There's, like, some stuff that I'll talk about from that, but mostly I'm going to talk about conversations. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'd say Three Ponies. I'd say Read Never Split the Difference. And then if you want to give this one a flip, it's pretty easy to yeah, read. Yeah, it's also pretty, yeah. Yeah, it's quick. There's, like, little diagrams. There's, like, pop-outs of, like, here's an example story of, like, Sanjay and what he did when he had blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, that you can skip over. Yeah. I skipped over every single one of those. Yeah. <laughs> it's about, what is it, about 220 pages? Yeah. Yeah, and that's including, like, forewords and afterwords and things. Yeah. So, to wrap it up, thanks for listening. I'm Anna-Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TweetAnnaMarie. And I am Sandy McPherson, founder of Quib. And you can find me on Twitter at SandyMac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And if there's a book that you're looking for us to read or a topic you'd love to hear us cover, send us a tweet at ClearlyProduct. We're always looking for new ideas and new things to discuss around product management. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>